Whether following Jesus collectively is still possible when up to 80% of evangelical Christians no longer think character is all that matters in leadership decisions. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And that's a mouthful. Enough of a mouthful that maybe I'll break it down and repeat the question in some smaller pieces. Whether following Jesus collectively, as a group, within the church, or more specifically within group church or parachurch activities, is still possible when some extremely large percent of evangelical Christians clearly no longer think character is all that matters in leadership decisions. I realize I'm releasing this right around Christmas Day at the end of 2016, and uh, a year ago at this time, Walk the Earth looked at some questions related to Christmas. So there are past episodes of Walk the Earth that ask questions about Christmas as a celebration. More than one, I think, probably at this time of year. This will not be one of those episodes. In this particular case, although I will let a pastor friend of mine offer some words about Christmas at the end of the show, I'll do a reading of a letter that he sent out uh, just this morning as I'm recording on Christmas Eve. But instead, I want to deal with 2016 in a much broader sense, because I think that the world has seen quite a bit about the Christian worldview, and I would not be surprised if a very large chunk of the unchurched world did not like what they see. I will tell you that as a member of the Christian church, who's actively participated in congregations for decades, not years, uh, I also would count myself among those who do not like what I've seen. I can remember having conversations going all the way back to 1984 and asking the question, uh, truly a political question. In fact, this may be uh, the first half of the show may be more political than we're used to seeing on a Walk the Earth episode. It's inappropriate conversations territory, well and truly. But it does apply because this is a question related to the church. At the very end, I will reveal that this is not me walking away from the church I attend. This is not me uh, having some sort of crisis of faith, per se. But it is me having a problem with other Christians, and it's me basically saying that if I needed to walk the earth again, I don't know if I would succeed. I believe that something happened this year, in the last, say, couple of months, that has changed the game completely for me. Because you see, as a voter, first-time voter at the national presidential level in 1984, I was asking questions, same questions I've been asking ever since, as a matter of fact about whether or not you all have to cast a vote to pick the person you think is going to win. That elections are not horse races. It's actually the name of a Inappropriate Conversations podcast released very early in, in the very first year of the show. But also, I didn't necessarily think that I was ha- had to be casting a vote for the person whose politics looked the most like mine. Especially in a situation where, from a political perspective... My sense of ethics and morality tends to be far more complex and far more deeply committed and felt than any politician, including the outsider politicians we've seen enter the fray here in the last few years, from the Tea Party all the way to the Trump campaign. So 
it was always a matter of me of trying to pick what I thought might be closest. But again, even in that first year, I asked, should I cast a vote more strategically? In other words, if I'm kind of on the fence 50-50 as somebody who politically qualifies as a moderate, I call myself a radical moderate, in fact, because I'm not in any way disinterested or apathetic. But as a radical moderate, if I can see qualities I like and dislike in both Reagan and Mondale, didn't it make more sense to cast a vote in the state I was living in for Mondale? Mondale had almost no chance of winning. I mean, a 1% or less chance of somehow sweeping to some staggering historic surprise victory in a very, very, what we now call red state. And if anything, my my vote was going to balance out that popular vote and try to create a sense that a president at the time was not necessarily getting swept in by a landslide and was some sort of mandate to do whatever he wanted. That I felt like there were a lot of people like me who would have preferred to have voted perhaps for him for re-election based on certain political uh, ideal, ideological ideas that I was in agreement with. But I also felt like that him in his current mental state, which was clearly even to me as a teenager in the 80s, shaky at best, feeling like he had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted struck me as very dangerous. And it opened up a conversation where I was told loudly and clearly, and I mean unanimously, by the church, pastors, assistant pastors, youth pastors, every member of my family, including my parents, my wife's parents. It was a collective piece of almost correction being offered to a new voter who just didn't quite know what he was doing. And that I quote, character is all that matters in presidential elections. There were actually two stories, which are to me completely logically inconsistent with each other. One was you've got to vote your pocketbook. Vote for whoever's going to lower your taxes. Vote for whoever's going to put more money in your bank account. And character is all that matters. Well, this year, clearly, we have jumped the shark on the question of character mattering at all. And I reject anyone who comes to me from a Christian perspective touting character being something that matters to them. In fact, I will say it. Say it boldly. To me, the answer to this question is probably, well, at best, I could say just maybe. It's only barely just maybe possible that we can still work collectively as Christians, uh, following Jesus and doing as he commanded, when a huge chunk of the people, clearly, when it comes to the biggest decisions they're going to make on the political side of the spectrum, can't be bothered to follow Jesus at all. That's my point of view here. Now, maybe you could make an argument that, hey, there was no winning answer, that, that, that it was a lose-lose situation. But yeah, people were seeming to make a bunch of false equivalencies about whether or not uh, a female candidate's husband committing adultery, perhaps multiple cases of adultery over many years, but none recently, was the same thing as somebody sexually assaulting women. The same thing as a dozen or more women, whether we believe the veracity of their claims or not, uh, going on the record to say, hey, this man, while married, in one case even while married and with his wife a few doors down, uh, wouldn't take no for an answer and was uh, addressing me in a digital sexual way that even my husband might ask if I was ready for before just diving in and doing it. In other words, the man who said he was going to grab women by their genitalia as a quote-unquote locker room talk joke in a pre-interview session with a TV personality has clearly been accused of doing it by people whose claims are extremely credible. And for people to just ignore all that, ignore uh, the peeping Tom stuff with teenage Miss America or Miss USA pageant women, the other accusations, which a full-scale online bullying effort is the only thing that has kept him out of facing charges, uh, civil charges, for his role in a, a rape 
in, in New York City a few years ago. So there's plenty of character problems here, and there's no way you can equivocate the character questions related to Trump with anything that Hillary Clinton can be blamed for or in any way held accountable for. As a Christian, I can remember in the 70s, if somebody in Hillary Clinton's position had divorced Bill, there still would have been some corners of the church, perhaps the Roman Catholic Church at the very least, who would have held it against her that she wasn't willing to put the sanctity of marriage above even Bill's serial adultery. Obviously, we've evolved in our position uh, for better or worse over the years, and in the 80s and 90s and, and now in the new millennium, there's a different point of view. And I understand politically conservative people who are uh, disappointed that she didn't just dump this guy, but that's not the same thing as being somebody who's been accused multiple times of sexual assault. And so where does that leave me? I'm left with a lot of Christians, including a lot of Christians that I would have, I guess, put stock in and trusted over the years, who have, in their mentoring role or in their authority as as somebody who's a pastor or in some other way shepherding a Christian flock, that I'm left thinking that everything they've ever said to me about character mattering was a lie. Or that what they've just done here in 2016 is a borderline unforgivable abomination. I'm not really seeing much in between. Because remember, these were the same people when I said, hey, maybe it makes sense to strategically cast a vote for Mondale, just to make sure that nobody thinks that they've got some mandate to ignore the U.S. Constitution because they won in such a landslide. I was told that that was not the appropriate thing to do, that that was not right, that strategic voting was wrong, and that you had to vote for where you believed morality, ethics, where you found Jesus, in other words. So this is a serious theological crisis. I'm not just taking advantage of of a 2016 year-in-review perspective to say, I've got a real problem with this, and it's affected my faith. It's real. I've got a real problem with this. If I were to be walking the earth again, if for whatever reason the church I'm attending was not so strong and healthy, and I will take advantage at the end of the show to demonstrate how strong and healthy this church actually is, but if that weren't the case, and I was back in the market, I think now what I would be doing would be asking very serious questions on the first visit, even if it was a year after the elections that just happened, or a year and a half after the elections, or two. I'd be asking What did you say from the pulpit and in small group meetings uh, about the Trump candidacy? Did you vote for Trump? Did you recommend that people voted for Trump? Did you fail to dissuade people against the idea of voting for Trump? Because to me, those answers cut back to the core of this hypocrisy related to whether or not character is important at all. And I refuse to try to walk hand in hand and work side by side with Christians I cannot trust because they've clearly lied to me either for decades now or they told a large collective lie of staggering proportions this year. Now we've heard different numbers. This tallies up in multiple ways. Was it 80% of evangelical Christianity who voted for Trump or was it just 70? If you blend in all the other different Christian denominations, did it come out to be more 50-50 or did it look more 48% Clinton, 46% Trump like the popular vote did? And the reason that I'm not going to put too much stock in trying to parse out exactly what those numbers are is that I'm not convinced at all that the numbers matter. You see, I have yet to hear a single one of these so-called politically conservative, evangelical Christian, religious right leaders, or even pastors who share that political worldview, once 
in any way that was even marginally public, any, in any way that was even remotely formal, stand up and point to the things Trump has done even after winning the election and calling out the lies when the lies are being told. Trump, for example, said before the election that the election was going to be tainted, that there was going to be all kinds of fraud. And then after the election, when he won it, he backtracked on that completely and openly mocked people who suggested that in really, really close elections, we should do a recount or at least wait for a final tally to be certain that the projections that gave uh, Trump wins in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania should be trusted. Then, when confronted with the fact that he was going to lose the popular vote, staggeringly, historically, perhaps by more margin than anybody else, or almost more margin than anybody else by percentage in the history of our country, to be the president who didn't win a popular vote but to miss by almost 3 million votes is, is frankly staggering. Then he switched again to saying, well, hey, the only reason for the difference there is because of all this voter fraud. And then when challenged on the idea of saying, if you agree with many in the Clinton camp that there were enough voting irregularities to delay the inauguration, delay any electoral college convening, and do a massive nationwide recount, uh, then he was back to being against it. And again, whatever level of political expediency is necessary, but the one thing that's absolutely, certainly factually true is that this man has absolutely no mandate whatsoever. It's not that he just, that he didn't win by enough votes to claim a mandate. He didn't win by enough electoral votes to be in any way ordinary, other than ordinary or average, and he lost popular votes by the greatest you know, plurality number in the history of our country. That's, if, if anything else, he's probably guilty of having the least mandate in history. But we're dealing with people, many of them not just evangelical Christians, but wishy-washy, you know, centrist-type Christians who just want everyone to stop arguing, who just want it to be done with, who just can't manage conflict, can't hold very different positions in their head at the same time, without feeling like they're somehow uh, engaging in some sort of deception of their own. These kinds of people are just ready to wash their hands and walk away. And yet, as I sit here, I'm saying, this president-elect saying that he won the majority of the votes despite the tally is a lie. This is not a person of the truth, which now begs the question of whether his supporters and whether the people that I would presumably be doing interfaith ministry with at some future point in time can be trusted to be people of the truth either. I'm going to talk in just a minute about why the stakes here are so high. But first, let me just make a blanket statement, sort of an, a long uh, essay-type answer to this question of whether following Jesus collectively is still possible now after the results of this election. And I think I'll answer the question this way, by saying that maybe the fact of the matter is, I no longer believe, or at least I no longer have confidence, that these Christians can call themselves followers of the truth anymore. They've let that go. They've traded it in for some sort of political payback against people they disagree with, like Hillary Clinton, or certainly her husband, or some sort of blatant power grab, an opportunity to stack the U.S. Supreme Court, being more important than actually letting the Constitution do its job and be followed to the letter. This ties in a little bit with the shenanigans of uh, going almost a year now with an open Supreme Court seat that um, there's a qualified candidate been put forth. And it's not that the Republicans in the U.S. Senate have, have read all of his briefings and papers and studied him and, and held hearings and decided against him because he's not qualified. They've just refused to do their job. So 
If you've got that much dishonesty, if you're following and agreeing with somebody who, although in a position of extreme political power, has also demonstrated a shaky understanding and comprehension of concepts like truth and reality, anybody who might assert boldly that he won the popular vote too and if you just, you know, disqualify the state of California or something that somehow he's got math in his head that makes that not as quite as intellectually suspect as it sounds and really truly is. No, no, no. To these Christians, Christians I might find myself one day engaging in prison ministry with or hospital ministry with, Jesus must now only be called the way and the life. He can no longer be called the way, the truth and the life, as the Bible says in John 14 verse 6. Because how can they call themselves Christians and still suggest that Jesus is the truth when their grasp of the truth is clearly so shaky? They've invested all or almost all of their chips in somebody whose grasp of the truth is cynically faulty to a sort of a legendary degree now. I believe we're going to come to the end of however long Trump's term lasts, looking back and calling it a single staggering exception in Americans' history. And the biggest exception is probably going to be around questions like truth and corruption, and even, frankly, basic comprehension of the U.S. Constitution as a founding document and the principles therein. You know, and I'll even take it a step further. In addition to saying that these particular types of Christians can no longer be called followers of the way, the truth, and the life, the best they can do is the way and the life, that even their grasp of the life is shaky, too. It's not that I'm making a judgment from afar. I've interacted and spoken with these people, and almost without exception, what they say is that the reason for their decision, the reason they held their nose and cast a vote, it wasn't a vote for Trump, it was a vote against Clinton, was over pro-life politics. Well, their grasp of life is shaky, too. It seems to only extend from conception, or in some cases, even before conception, because their grasp of conception is kind of shaky as well, to the moment of birth, and that's it. Because once you're born, if you're not born into the right social class, the right race, the right creed, the right religion, in the right place at the right time, they clearly don't really care about those folks either. You can be a you know one-year-old child in desperate need of finding emergency medical care in the United States because of what's happened to you in your Middle Eastern or European country, where an act of violence has been performed against a wide geographic area and you've been caught in the crossfire. And they're not going to be at all committed to the life of that particular child. If that child was pre-born, if that child was in the 21st week of gestation and the mother of that child was seeking an abortion somewhere in the United States, well, then they'd be all over it. So maybe we should even chuck it in and just say, hey, if your grasp of the truth and the life is that shaky, why would we even presume that your grasp of the way is in any way strong? Jesus gave us a lot of things that he wanted us to do, set a lot of examples in the Bible. And I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton or or Johnson or you know, Stein or anybody else was walking that walk perfectly either. But Trump has been given, let's say, way too much credit for how little, how almost non-existent his walk with Christ is. You could almost take any one of his stump speeches and pull line after line after line that is probably 180 degrees away from what Jesus would say in the same situation, and yet in huge numbers whether it's 48%, 50%, 60%, or 80%, in huge numbers, a large swath of politically active Christians voted for this man. And if they can't be trusted to live by their own motto that character counts, 
and to be truthful and hold the people that they're putting forth to lead us accountable for being truthful. How in the world could I trust them side by side to do the right thing in the context of, say, a prison ministry? Now, I've had conversations where I've addressed this question in my mind before because I have participated in parachurch outreach in many ways before, including once prison ministry. And I just, I now probably already have known that that just doesn't make sense because of some issues, but now I just feel like there's just no way. Now I feel like whatever doubts I may have had or what arguments might have been milling in the back of my mind about Jesus specifically mentioning visiting prisoners in Matthew 25, and how do you sort of wall that off completely as being not an area where you're spiritually gifted and spiritually strong? Well, the answer is now I would wall it off because I can't trust the people I might be standing side by side with. They're dishonest. They openly embrace dishonesty. They have lied to me by, to my face before. And they're likely to make highly suspect decisions based on judgmentalism. I saw an article earlier to this week, I guess, that was about a Michigan firefighter who has been fired, or the article says dismissed. We'll see if he gets his job back like the uh, the clerk in a West Virginia um, office did. Uh, hers was a was an anti-Michelle Obama tirade with some extremely ugly... Um, yeah, well, this is the same idea, though. This, this firefighter in, in, engaged in some extreme ugliness, lashing out to a black woman. His response to her tweet, her tweet was Black Lives Matter. That was it. And I don't know what the exchange in Twitter was before that. Maybe she did actually uh, say some very confrontational things. But this firefighter, responding specifically to her saying Black Lives Matter, called her a racist slur, referred to her as a female dog, told her to kiss his butt, and not in those terms, none of these, I'm watering it down to keep the explicit tag off Walk the Earth, and told her to go back to the fields that us in the North fought to free you from. So with racism being baked into it, and worse, racism where there's probably a dozen Christians I know who in the midst of looking at this story were trying to find at least three or four ways that it could be interpreted in a way that wasn't inherently racist. That we now have Christians who are so far away from being people of the truth that the use of inward-based racial slangs, calling somebody a female dog and telling them to kiss their butt, and doing so in the context of, you should be a slave, I, my people fought to free you, you should go back to the fields if you think black lives matter, and all that, that they would find a way to sleep at night thinking that this was in some ways not actually really racism. Well, how do you go into a prison and serve in ministry in a prison with standing side by side with people who might refer to themselves as uh, Trump voting Christians or regrettably Trump, Trump voting Christians? And not have to worry about whether or not you're going to be sitting in the crossfire of a group that you're there to serve with, antagonizing the population that they're called to serve. Because perhaps their grasp of the truth has become so shaky that they've lost, just as they can't recognize racism when they see it, they've maybe lost the definition, the true definition of the word service, too. Now, I realize this sounds depressing, and I'm going to willfully end on a positive note at the at the end of the show today. By using someone else's words, because I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was dealing with some depression. There's lots of stuff going on here at the end of the year, and um, seasonal affective disorder is not something I feel personally afflicted by, so that can't be used as an excuse. Now, the stuff going on in our nation as a whole, and the threat that it poses, frankly, to the entire world, has got 
me legitimately down. And there is a group of people that I'm legitimately worried about and for. But the news isn't all bad. In the next Inappropriate Conversations, I'm going to name a different drummer who's frankly been an inspiration to me for several years now, and it's high time I got around to citing him specifically. I'll do that. And just this week on Twitter, I was followed back by another pastor who I think I found to be an inspiration for quite some time now. Walking a very difficult walk, being a Christian pastor who is lesbian and engaged to to be married to a woman. She shared something this week that I thought was pretty much right on target, and why I'm struggling here to trust the greater Christian church more than I do, or even as much as I used to, uh, referring to her fiancé, quoting her fiancé, in fact, says this. So essentially, Trump campaigns say, I'm going to kill 10 puppies and give you a cookie. And when you're challenged, and challenge people saying that they voted for the puppy killer, they say, oh, no, 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 I didn't vote for the puppy killer, I voted for the cookie. Compartmentalization has been a problem that I've called out and criticized throughout the history of both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. Anybody wanted to test my veracity on that could go back to the very beginning and probably pretty quickly find and prove that it's true. Every episode I've ever recorded of Inappropriate Conversations is available at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I know that only the last, say, 20 or so episodes are available on iTunes and other podcatchers. But I never pull anything down. Even if I've come to reevaluate my point of view all those years ago, I don't pull the original point of view down. I'm not going to be like these Christians, pretending I didn't vote for the puppy killer because I just wanted the cookie. I'm not going to compartmentalize. And there, of course, there's another way you can tap into some of those old episodes and sample and see what was said in them and what they were about, because I'm also on SoundCloud. I can be found at uh, IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud. And my purpose for being there was to excerpt relatively small audio clips of all of the original shows, going back to the very beginning of Inappropriate Conversations, and working my way forward. I haven't quite gotten to the point of deciding how to excerpt Walk the Earth episodes yet, but I still have, through IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud, shared some entire Walk the Earth episodes there. So either from the website at inappropriateconversations.org, or through SoundCloud, now the history of my point of view here, and how much I've rejected people who can, say, cheat on their wife, but give themselves some elaborately compartmentalized justification for why they're still, quote-unquote, faithful. That's what we're dealing with here. And we're dealing with it on a massive scale. If, again, at least half of Christianity as a whole, or if we want to dispute that, at the very least, more than half of what is identified as evangelical Christianity is engaging in exactly this kind of compartmentalization that Kimberly A. Knight called out on her Twitter feed just this week. So it matters. We have extreme ugliness happening. Violence being performed against individuals. Uh, shop clerks being verbally berated for, among other things, the color of their skin and their uh, command of, of a uh, traditional dialect of the English language. Swastikas being scrawled onto churches. Uh, things of that nature. And I've been using my own personal Facebook page since the day after the election, asking my fellow Christians, my fellow Trump-voting, Trump-supporting Christians, who surely want the man to succeed. Why in the world would you not want the man to succeed? I think everybody, even those who voted against him, want him to not fail spectacularly, at the very least, to stand up and say, hey, this kind, this kind of activity is wrong, this behavior is wrong. Violence is wrong. Being a sore loser is ugly. Being a sore winner is reprehensible. And to some degree, that's kind of what's been going on. There have been people who have been assaulted, 
hospitalized by Trump supporters who feel like this win gives them some sort of mandate to exercise their own version of a a violent resegregation of our society. And I could not possibly take the risk of being in a situation where I wasn't just in my own church, where I have some say. I have a membership stake, but part of a parachurch group where multiple churches were interacting together. I just feel like I can't take the risk of being in a situation where my hands would be tied at speaking up and correcting that and shutting it down for how unchristian and inappropriate it is because I was part of a larger group doing an independent outreach that was, you know, not just mine or not even just my churches. I think I've mentioned this before on Walk the Earth, but the church we left was a very traditional United Methodist congregation. Their approach was going to be things like uh, Christmas Eve service at 7 o'clock, where the children would have something to do, whether a play or a solo, and then a 11 p.m. Church, uh, church service where the adult choirs would take over, and we'd have a cantata or something of that nature, and um, very uh, usually no Christmas Day sort of a worship service. Um, even on a Sunday, it was 50-50 whether, you know, when it would happen every six or seven years or so, you'd have to make a decision, are we going to have a worship service on this Sunday or not? The last one I can remember with Christmas falling on a Sunday, we did have a worship service that Sunday. I think it was even a snowy day that we had a worship service on that Sunday, but it wasn't always true. But a very traditional structure with a building and church members, the average church members' devotion to that building by far exceeded their devotion to ministry, which was one of the reasons we walked away. We ended up finding a church that no longer had a building on the other side of the mountain, actually, of realizing that the building that they had was no longer sustainable. And if they tried to tether themselves to the history that was baked into that particular place, that they were inevitably going to be no longer existent, that they weren't that far away from not being able to pay the bills because they simply weren't in a place where people were coming to worship anymore, and that they needed to be the church by doing as Jesus said in Matthew 28 and going to find disciples instead of just hanging up a shingle and trusting that good people would find them and bad people would stay away and that 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 would be all that you needed. Sort of the 1950s, 60s, 70s model of Christianity in action. But this church now, this congregation now, no longer has a building. That there may at some point be a building in the future, but at this point they've been meeting in other places, most recently in a health and wellness center. So sort of a community rec center is where this church meets, meaning that when the community center is closed for a holiday, say New Year's Day, Christmas Day, that church is going to be unavailable for the same reason. So for this particular congregation, that not only affects Christmas Day, where we kind of know we're not going to have a church service on Christmas Day in the community center where we, we meet every Sunday. We also know that Christmas Eve, in fact, for a couple of years now, we've known Christmas Eve is not going to work because You'd want, actually, if you were an employee at an exercise facility, you'd want to be able to close your building at 4, 5, 6 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve so that your employees could spend time with their families and with their own churches. So we've done what we've called a Christmas Eve Eve service. Last night I participated in that as best I could, fighting a pretty serious cold. But the reality is that frees up Christmas Eve tonight, and I don't know if I'm going to be going to uh, one of my children's churches to do a, a traditional Christmas Eve event, and I'm curious as to whether I'm going to find the contrast between the two to be alarming. I'm also curious as to whether I'm going to be sitting there the whole time, wondering whether I am worshiping with a large group of people, surely a majority, maybe even a super majority 
of people who used to say that character counts and now clearly don't believe it anymore. In other words, I'm going to struggle in this Christmas Eve service if I go. Last night I struggled physically trying to restrain a cough and overcome some congestion and runny nose. That may still be the case. I don't know whether the medications I'm taking are going to kick in and make all the difference in the world by tonight at 7 o'clock, but I also know I'm going to have many more things to deal with among them. The answer to today's question of whether following Jesus collectively with other people outside my own small congregation is still possible when it's reasonable to wonder if 80% of the evangelical Christians that I'm sitting with in those pews no longer thinks character is all that matters in leadership decisions. People who didn't lose enough sleep, if any, over casting a vote for somebody like Trump with the things that he has done, the things that he has said, the things that he has said were lies, or the things that he said that were true, which reflect even worse on his character because in some cases the worst thing you could say about the man is he actually did some of the things he said about grabbing women and forcing himself upon them non-consensually or watching teenage girls change at a beauty pageant. I could go on and on and on. The list of character problems here is staggering. And the excuse that he's not a career politician, so he hasn't done as good a job hiding his character flaws as other people have, doesn't work as well as you might think. Inappropriate Conversations 25, I believe, was the number. Very first year. Talked about my qualifications to being president. And I told it jokingly. And the joke was that I actually have fulfilled checking off all the boxes that my Republican Christian friends have traditionally told me you'd have to check in order to be a president. If you've used an illegal drug, you're out, in their opinion. If you committed adultery, you're out, in their opinion. Um, so forth and so on. Just the list of things that we were confronted with to tell us why it was more important to vote for somebody named Bush than somebody with any other last name on the Democrat side of the ticket. Well, my joke was that I actually did kind of tick most of those boxes. You know, I've been faithful to one woman my entire life, never used an illegal drug, yada, yada, yada. None of it mattered. All of it was a lie. All of it was a ruse. Because those same Christians just voted for somebody. Happily or not, voted for somebody who's the exact opposite of the list that they for years had held over the heads of people named Dukakis, Clinton, Kerry, and Obama. This is something that I'm not going to get past. This is something that's going to weigh on my mind the next time someone says, hey, would you like to go and participate in a large group of uh, cross-denominational group of people, including non-denominational churches, uh, where I think probably the Trump factor is even the highest out there, in some sort of hospital visitation thing, or some sort of community pageant of some sort. And I'm probably even lying to myself when I say that the answer to this question is only just maybe. The answer to this question is truly, probably, yeah, no thank you. So, said I wasn't going to end this on a negative note, and I wasn't going to ignore Christmas as a holiday completely this year, but the words were going to have to come from somebody else. The words were going to have to come from somebody who, you know, maybe only because it's his job and he's paid to do so, has a much better Christmas spirit than the state of mine this year, or even, frankly, the state of mine last year. If If you go back, we've been dealing with this pungent political toxicity for more than just a couple of years now. And I'm quite sure it's affected Walk the Earth. But no, Pastor Joel is the pastor of the church that I go to. He sent a letter out um, that was timed to be released today, speaking about Christmas and Christmas being a Sunday and whether there was going to be a Christmas service. And I want to share it. 
Didn't ask permission, but I'm going to share it anyway. And it started with a very tongue-in-cheek, smiley face uh, email headline, The Christmas service tomorrow is at Greg's house. Okay. Uh, is your house ready for Christmas to come over? Gotcha. The truth is, though, Christmas is at your house tomorrow. And every day, Joel wrote. Christmas, like church, doesn't happen in a building on Sunday mornings or just one day a year. It happens with each breath we breathe, with every act of generosity, every person on the receiving end of an embrace, and every stranger that gets their Starbucks paid for by the person in front of them. I'd go even further and say that Christmas is a baby shower thrown for an immigrant couple from Nepal who left to make a life for themselves and their expected child. Christmas is when we buy fair trade, advocating fair wages for people who provide the coffee beans we pour in our coffee makers tomorrow morning. Are your eyes already tired? Christmas is when we lovingly give to a family struggling to put Christmas food on the table by donating and volunteering at places like Good Neighbors and Backpacks for a Blessing. If there is anything we have learned together over the past month of Advent, it is that our faith can be found in the most unexpected places, especially among those living in the margins. Over the past few years, this church has been positioning ourselves as a missional gathering, people full of action. But we have to continually prove that we are not just talk. As you gather with your family tomorrow, I want to ask you to discuss one question together. Come on, don't push it aside. After all, there's no church today. This is our church, and here is the question. What is the one thing you can do as a family or individually to embrace the people living on the margins like Jesus and his family were centuries ago? I bet we can come up with endless ideas. And there's a test. You'll have an opportunity to share your one thing at church next Sunday at our special New Year's Day brunch at 11 a.m. Here are some ideas. Serve together at a soup kitchen. Attend the social justice teach-in Saturday, February 4th that's scheduled in the community. Commit to buying supplies to make more homeless bags to distribute. Give financially to a refugee resettling organization. Make cookies for a domestic violence shelter or a veteran's home. Go visit a shut-in member of the church. Or participate in other ways in the small groups of the church. Help sort of provide for their Easter party coming up. When we look towards people who live in the margins as people, people who have something to offer, we are Christmas. In our affluent lives, we have to intentionally go off script to do it, though. We have to make it a priority. We have to enter the margins. After all, the Jesus we celebrate entering our world today lived in the margins. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were refugees being registered because of political powers who were nervous. The Holy Family was constantly on the run, searching for a place of rest, but never able to find one. They looked more like the refugees of our world living in camps and less like the Christmas nativities we display. And all your pastor asks this Christmas Day is one thing. One thing. Certainly we can enter the margins to find Jesus, can't we? What will your one thing be? Would you pray with me? Careful. This one is hard. Refugee God. You were the one who knew the plight of those in the margins. We acknowledge this Christmas Day that we live privileged lives for which we are grateful. Would you inspire us to move into the margins in the ways you call us to? Show us ways we can enter the lives of people who live like your family did centuries ago, on the run, searching for a meal, and politically oppressed. 
Help us to take notice and go off script so that we can find you. Merry Christmas and much love. May your Christmas day be warm, safe, and inspiring. Pastor Joel. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. We just offer a couple of words of closing, kind of in and around Pastor Joel's letter and the prayer that will be the closing prayer, stand as the closing prayer today. There may be some, especially the kind of people who really struggle with the truth, which unfortunately the church is just full of them these days, who question whether or not it's fair and accurate to describe Jesus and his parents as de facto refugees. And you can make an argument that a standard nationwide sort of relocation for the perspective of registering for a census is both, yes, a political mandate from an occupying force that was kind of afraid of not having good control or good, um, again, a census understanding of the population that they were trying to manage. But you also could argue that it hit Mary Joseph and Jesus particularly hard. Anybody who wants to make a claim that it's unfair to describe Mary Joseph and Jesus as refugees has not read the Bible very carefully. Jesus was less than two years old when Herod sent people to kill every child then in Bethlehem that was under the age of two years old. This is how we know that Jesus was probably between one and two at the time. Herod had done a calculated estimate of how old the, the born Messiah might be in an effort to remain in kingship of his own and you know, kind of thwart the prophecy that there was going to be a new king born in Bethlehem at this particular point in time, at this particular point in history. He sent soldiers in to kill every male child that was under the age of two. Where did Jesus go? Back to Nazareth, along the routes that would be part of the same kingdom that Herod was managing as the, the local, quote-unquote, king under Roman occupation? No, they fled to Egypt. And it begins an entire series of more than a decade where there's a clear biblical void about the life of Christ. We don't really know much, but we do know that at the very least it started with Jesus on the run as a refugee from political occupation from Rome and the murderous intent of his own local leaders, and having to live, probably, door-to-door and hand-to-mouth for quite some time before it was safe to go back to their family origins in the, uh, the Nazareth city in Galilee. So, I will defend the idea that Jesus is obviously far more a refugee in the biblical account of Christmas than what it looks like when you see a full-blown Christmas pageant portrayed. What they were doing was more in the margins, I guess, to use the terminology that my church used all Advent long. Much more in the margins than we give it credit for. So, have I thought about this question? A little bit. I've been thinking about this question, frankly, since the very first part of November. I think the answer to me is likely to be that there are projects out there that have existed for years that fly a bit under the radar, and maybe they need to fly under the radar in these particular politically... Um, you know, difficult times. But I think maybe where I would like to find the people who are in the margins and offer, if nothing else, financial support are people who have found themselves homeless because they've been kicked out of their family structure for being in love with the wrong person in the eyes of their parents or in the eyes of their siblings, whether this be uh, gay kids, teenagers, transgendered, or even young adults 
who, because they've found someone that they do love and they intend to get married and form a life together, have found themselves either unsupported or the victim of violent aggression in some way. There are projects out there like the Trevor Project, and that's not the only one, where, to me, somebody who is homeless because they were kicked out of their house as, say, a 16-year-old boy or girl, living on the streets to try to survive, uh, hungry and thirsty as a result of that, perhaps having to break laws or skirt the law just to get by and survive, and therefore potentially viewed as criminals, or finding themselves open to exposure or open to violence and finding themselves in a hospitalized situation. We look at this uh, section of Matthew chapter 25 that I refer to often on Walk the Earth, the one that a lot of uh, biblical scholars refer to as the Great Judgment. Jesus says, as you have done for these types of people, that's what you've done for me, that what you do for the gay kid, homeless, living on the street, even turning tricks and catching a disease or going to jail to try to survive, that is Jesus saying, that is me, that is God incarnate. And if you can't find a way to reach me in that situation, because of your fear, because of your prejudice, because of your political point of view, or because of anything else, whether that be hypocrisy or outright lying to yourself about whether there's really... Whether you're really in any way politically harmed because two people you don't know fall in love with each other and they happen to be the same gender. Whatever the situation may be, I believe that Jesus in the margins is saying that that's a hurting group of people. That's a marginalized group of people. And my expectation is a line by which I'm going to decide who is with me in the kingdom of heaven and who is falling outside the kingdom of heaven is whether you're willing to reach out to those people that you in your heart might have at one point in your life, or even currently in your life, had the temerity to refer to as the least of these. This is what church should do. Church should push us, should challenge us, should ask bigger questions, should not ask us to knuckle under and fall in line. Church should not be asking us to hold our nose and vote for the guy who, I don't know, may have said the equivalent of wanting to kill puppies, maybe said the equivalent of being willing to start a thermonuclear war, because he's going to give me a cookie. I'm rejecting that cookie. I'm going to hold that particular politician, whether he thinks he's a politician or not, accountable for living up to the standard that for whatever reason, evangelical Christianity believes he somehow lives up to. We have Christians today who are saying that it's God's will that Trump won that election and that he is God's anointed chosen leader that everything written in the beginning of Romans 13 applies to Donald Trump. I would ask those same Christian leaders to read the rest of Romans 13 and to remind themselves that by being more in love with the law than with the Lord, they're falling far more afoul of the Apostle Paul than they think they are. When they find certain verses in books like Romans and Corinthians that they think they can be bended through the interpretation of modern terminology to affirm their position, that some people are unworthy of being served. This is why I struggle. This is why I'm thankful that I'm part of a church who I think gets it. And this is why from a Walk the Earth perspective, I might be taking a couple of months off here. We'll see. I don't think I know the next question. I'd planned a question in the middle of January and then another one at the beginning of February, and the middle of January is definitely out, and February and March are clearly suspect. I'm not saying I've run out of questions. I'm far more humble than that. I've got a lot more questions, I'm sure. I'm just in a place in my life right now where it's very hard for me to think of them 
or articulate them. In the meantime, though, thanks for listening. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.